Welcome back for episode 5 of Hit Singhal. As always, I'm your host, Akshat Singhal, and today we have stat guru slash NBA aficionado, Joseph Nation. How's it going? It's good. How are you? Pretty good. Um, So I know it's been an exciting week for you, so I'll let you kick off this week's Love 30. So yeah, I I got into my top, top choice master's program at Boston College. I'll be able to do it all online, not have to relocate out of Portland. I'm uh, hoping to end up, you know, being able to invo- be involved with their basketball team in some capacity, and yeah, that, that, that that's pretty exciting for me. And then also, it's the uh, it's the week where everybody declares for the draft, and so you you kind of just you know you spend thirty seconds on Twitter, and then all of a sudden, oh shoot, another uh, you know seventh best prospect from Tennessee is declaring for the draft for some reason to see how he gets evaluated, or uh, you know. North, North Illinois University's uh, best prospect declared, I think, <laughs> earlier today. And it's just like, it's a ton of fun, but it's also very exhausting. Yeah. Um, well, one, congrats on the Masters um, getting into Boston College. That's exciting. Um, and then two, yeah, this is like every hour or so I jump on Twitter and I see some random guy I've never heard of or from some school I've never heard of <laughs> declare for the draft. So I'm doesn't. It doesn't uh, move the needle with me much, but I'm sure for a big draft guy like you, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so mine, uh, my two, I had uh, was um, Duke losing. I love that because it's Duke, and it's always fun to watch them lose. And I know a couple of people who are Duke fans, so watching them kind of uh, scramble on social media and try to justify everything that went wrong is kind of fun to watch. Um, and then outside of that it's being Duke and them being, you know, it's fun watching them lose and all that, that I just don't think this Duke team was that fun to watch in general. Um, Zion was great. Obviously Uh, he was fun to watch, but outside of him, I didn't particularly love watching RJ Barrett clank every other three he took. Um, (laughs) I didn't love watching Cam Reddish shoot like 28% from three or whatever he did this year. Uh, It's just, they weren't a good shooting team. And it was, you saw it in the tournament. Once the team kind of shut down that, the paint, it was just they struggled to get shots to fall. And I don't know. I won't miss watching them play this weekend in the Final Four. Uh, I don't know about anyone else, but yeah. And then uh, this entire month of April, I'm very excited because Game of Thrones comes back in less than two weeks, and I'm going to LA for a wedding. And Avengers Endgame is right after that. So April has a lot going on, and I'm not mentally ready for any of it, but it'll be fun. (laughs) All right, uh, we'll go on to word association, and we have five headlines here for this these two weeks. It's kind of a down week or down couple weeks. Um, NBA is kind of wrapping up the regular season. Nothing really going on in the NFL, but college basketball is the most exciting thing right now. And um, the first one, we'll start off with the biggest and probably the only 
big NFL news to come out for the next like five months. Um, Gronk announced his retirement from the NFL. Uh, my first reaction to this was goat. I mean, he was single-handedly the most unguardable player in the NFL for however six, seven years long his prime was. And I think he is unquestionably the greatest tight end ever. Despite the fact that his his active years is far less than what the other um, like top-tier tight ends like Shannon Sharp and Tony Gonzalez and those guys. But he was better and just unstoppable like more unstoppable than any of the other tight ends in the league have ever been mm-hmm. yeah and for me it's the word the words i came up with were less fun i've never been much of a football guy i actually just learned for the first time that shannon sharp was the tight end about 15 seconds ago um <laughs> but gronk was easily the single most fun player in a league that you know it gets the uh it gets the moniker no fun league all the time it you know has a major problem with the ability to let its stars actually shine as people rather than as a product. Um, And so losing Gronk, one of the very few faces that actually shines like that is it's not good for the NFL, but it's not good for the viewer either. Um, And so, yeah, that's how it kind of affects, affects me. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the NFL has, like you said, that moniker, the no fun league, which ever since players like Chad Johnson and those guys existed, it's just the NFL has done everything they can to make, players into robots essentially and Gronk was one of the few guys who broke away from that mold and some people hated it some people loved it Uh, I think you and I are both ones that loved it so definitely is less fun for the NFL the next headline we've got here is the Lakers shutting down LeBron for the rest of the season I'll let you kick this one off okay so for me this one's a consequence and not just for, you know, for the Lakers front office, even though, I mean, it's obviously a consequence at some level for the Lakers front office because they went out and signed Lance Stevenson, Rajon Rondo, JaVale McGee, guys who just didn't fit. Um, they're, they're going to lose ticket revenue of that. It's, you know, having to shut LeBron down because they're not in playoff competition and it's the strategically correct decision is a consequence of their actions further in the, earlier in the season. But also, at some level, it's a consequence for LeBron, who elected instead of an organization that had a demonstrated track record of winning or um, at least some level of personnel to put around him, um, he instead gets to miss, miss out games, so he doesn't get the extra volume stats towards, uh, like, towards pursuing the overall record, so he doesn't, you know... He doesn't close the gap anymore on Kareem and points, which is the big one that he's uh, like that you really hope he's going to chase over the rest of his career. Um, you know, he doesn't add any assists. I think he could have moved up to top ten in assists all time this season had he actually uh, played. I think even the last six games. I, th- I don't remember exactly how close he is to that, but he's getting somewhere close to that. Um, and so basically, yeah, LeBron just loses out by virtue of like by virtue of having to sit out. But it's a direct consequence of him choosing this team earlier in the season. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of that later. Um, But yeah, I I kind of agree. My word for this one was just disappointing. Obviously, uh, LeBron's a polarizing figure. I think it's disappointing for him. It's disappointing for fans. This season, I think in percentage of games played is going to be the lowest in his career. The only season that even comes close in terms of total number of games played was the lockout season. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I don't even know if that really counts. I mean, it really doesn't. Um, but yeah, it's just injuries were an issue for him this year. And I know they said they're resting him because they want him to rest his groin more. Uh, I think it's just, they're just throwing in the towel on the season. Obviously they're already mathematically eliminated. They've been mathematically eliminated for a couple of weeks now. I guess there's no reason for them to keep playing LeBron. Uh, the only reason that did exist is like you said, kind of chasing those all time records. But yeah, I think it's just disappointing for everyone involved. And we'll, we'll touch more on the Lakers later. So we'll go to our next headline, and it's the Washington Wizards dismiss longtime president and GM Ernie Grunfeld. My reaction to this was, this is way overdue. <laughs> I mean, this is like, this should have happened years ago. They've had years of just bad signings, bad contracts. Um, and I, I get, I mean, I guess better late than never, but I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what made them do it now versus not four years ago. Um, I don't, I don't really know what happened behind the scenes for them to be like, Oh yeah, now's a good time because it seems like obviously the John wall injury is now coming back or the John wall contract is now coming back to bite them because of that injury that he got. But that's not necessarily Ernie's fault. The injury, at least the contract maybe, but yeah, it's way overdue. Yeah. It's definitely overdue. But also, I'm not even sure that um, that that they're actually done with their long, you know, localized nightmare, um, which is why my word was it's the first shoe. Um, it feels like yeah, they managed to finally get rid of Grunfeld at some level, but then you look at the guys that they're targeting in terms of you know who who they might have as his replacement, and they're not good. Um, <laughs> you know, one one of the guys they looked at is uh, Tim Connolly of Denver, right? Um, and that front office. You know, at one point they actually had nine power forwards on their roster. Um, <laughs> they've made collective bargaining agreement errors that, like, there's at least forty people just like in NBA Twitter that wouldn't make that kind of error. So, for example, <laughs> this past summer they actually lost the ability to use the full mid-level exception um, because they didn't wait to sign their contracts, even though they absolutely could have. Um, and that's just the kind of thing, like. It might not seem common to the layperson, but to anyone who's like kind of read through the collective bargaining agreement or even just like has some passing familiarity with it, that's not a thing that happens. Um, and so it's weird that he's, you know, he's getting considered for NBA GM spots like in other places, despite not like, I mean, yeah, Denver's good, but that's largely not because of Connolly. Um, it's largely because they, I mean, they did make a good, a very good pick in Nikola Jokic. And that's about it. Um, they, <laughs> I, I believe the Gary Harris trade was before Connolly's tenure. Uh, I believe he was still in Sacramento at the time. Um, and the Jamal Murray trade was with a, like, the Jamal Murray pick was a byproduct of the Carmelo trade, which was well before his tenure. Um, <laughs> and so, like, all of the best assets he's gotten have either been, you know, before he was there or... A little bit lucky, let's be realistic here, because Jokic, even if he was a great... Statistically, Jokic was one of the best prospects out of the Adriatic League ever in terms of his actual production, so there was reason to believe he would be somewhat good. There was no reason to believe he would be Nikola Jokic. Um, And so, like, 
basically getting back to the original point with the Wizards the guys that they're looking at because they've looked at him they've looked at a guy in the New Orleans front office I believe and like it's just this list of guys where it's just like yeah, I'm not quite sure they're actually going to get anything better than Grunfeld here and that's not a good thing because Grunfeld was bad yeah it's just uh, I think it's the Wizards being the Wizards I think that's the easiest way to describe anything that they do mm-hmm. um like I have a, I know someone who's a Wizards fan and has been for years, and he kind of like gave up on the team as long as Grunfeld was still the GM. He gave up on them ever being good. Um, so I, I hope they make a better hire. I hope whoever they bring in next makes better decisions or not. Maybe the Wizards can just be bad forever. I don't care. <laughs> I will gladly take a division rival with a, uh, with no working strategy. Yeah, I mean, that's how I was for the longest time as a Bengals fan. I was happy when the Browns had no strategy, and now <laughs> now it sucks that they do. Um, all right, our next one here is uh, the AAF is immediately suspending football operations. My first thing here was it's expected, I guess. Um, so we heard about, what was it, like a month or two ago when they had to get more funding for the league to keep going. And that was the first sign where, you know, I think everyone kind of figured out that this is probably not going to (laughs) last. And I, I get the excitement over the AAF and like NFL was over. So everyone kind of wanted their fix of football. But then once you actually sit down and watch the games, it was like watching preseason NFL and it was worse (laughs) than watching preseason NFL. It was just not good. You had Christian Hackenberg was a starting quarterback and then he got benched. And then you had Zach Mettenberg was a starting quarterback. I mean, these are guys who aren't even good enough to be second or third string in the NFL anymore. So I I, I, I get why everyone was excited for it. And it was fun for a couple of weeks when you got to watch some of these older, or some of these players who were formerly in the NFL. But it was just, it was not a good product. The team sucked. Most of the players were just not good. So this doesn't surprise me. And there, then there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff going on with the AF right now that sucks for the players involved because a lot of them are now coming away with no money. They have to use their own money just to fly back home. And, um, yeah, I'd, most of them might not even ever get another football job. So, yeah, this was kind of a last-case last scenario for some of these players, and now they're just shit out of luck. For for me, it definitely was expected, you're right, but for me it's more disappointing than anything, just because the AAF, as spotty as it was in terms of like, oh yeah, there's this could fail at any given moment and the players aren't all that good and all that, it did have an, ele- an, an, an air of excitement to it that, I mean, like we talked about it with the Gronk discussion, the NFL doesn't always, like, it, it captures, but at the same time, like, it doesn't necessarily always get... And so, like, the AAF was doing a good job of kind of making it to where there were at least some storylines you could follow outside of uh, the NFL. Because, I mean, you know, Menzel in the AAF, in the AAF was actually, you know, one of the more exciting things. Um, it's kind of harder to keep track of him in the CFL than it is here. And so, like, you know, it's it's certainly not unexpected, but at the same time, it's still very disappointing that it couldn't manage to make it at least to the three-year mark. Yeah, um, I think that was one of those where it's just... Everyone, you want it to make it that far because then you hope that at some point they start getting better players and 
it becomes a more exciting league, but a lot has to go right for that to happen. And I guess I'm just not surprised that it didn't go right. And then uh, with all the stories coming out about the uh, owner who came in and bought majority share of the company um, and, you know, some of the reasons as to why he may have come in and bought the company. uh, When you have an owner like that who comes in and if those stories are true, then yeah, it's kind of doomed to fail or destined to fail. And the last one we have here uh, is John Morant declares for the NBA draft. Uh, I'll let you kick this one off. So yeah, for, for me, this is kind of one of those things where it's totally expected. He's projected to go as a top 10 pick. The last time we had one of those that didn't really... I mean, last year we saw Wendell Carter Jr. kind of waffle before finally going in. But typically speaking, if you're projected to go in the top 10, you're going to end up going... Uh, going on to the draft. It's after that that it starts to get kind of sketchy. And Morant's not even projected top 10. He's projected pretty consistently top 5, whether that's right or wrong. Um, partially because of the number of teams near the top of the draft that need point guards. But yeah, so like, it's one of those things where it's not surprising. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, like, it, it, it's, it still matters in terms of keeping the quality of this draft up because so far we've had mostly lower level people declare and he's the first like big name to do so. Yeah, um, like you said, it was definitely not surprising at all, and it was very expected. And uh, so I went with the word skeptical. So obviously we knew he was going to declare. He's going to go top five probably, and he was easily one of the more exciting players in college basketball this year, probably the second most exciting player right behind Zion. But I'm skeptical. he played in a conference that wasn't good. He has a lot of, uh, I think, Westbrook-like tendencies, both good and bad. Um, what's funny is that he wasn't a good shooter for probably like 95% of the season, and then the tournament came around and all of a sudden he's hitting threes. So it, it remains to be seen if, that's a, uh, if, that, if he can sustain that in the league. But I'm skeptical. Um, I love watching him play. At the college level, whether that's going to translate to the NBA, I'm not entirely sold. I know you're the uh, the draft guy here. I don't know if, and I know you're a little lower on him than I think most people are. So, right, yeah. So the shooting actually is a specifically interesting point because what happened is early in the season he had his release point much further extended out from his body than a normal player does. Um, and he was also taking a large number of shots off the move where his footwork kind of impacts that because um, his footwork is not great in that regard. Um, and so what happened later in the season is that he started slowing his release down um, and pulling it back in towards his body. Um, and he does that probably 70% of the time and it improved his shot quality a lot. But, um, well, one, you can't really slow your slow your shot release down at the NBA because you will get closed out on. Um, and to, if you're only doing a form correction 70% of the time, it won't necessarily stick through to the NBA. Um, and so like, yeah, it's like, that's one of those things where it's, there are plenty of reasons to be skeptical and the shooting is kind of a good illustration of why you can be skeptical because there are pieces to his game that are kind of broken and you're not sure if they'll actually fix themselves correctly. Yeah, it's, it'll be a fun, um, I guess case study for him or for people who are big fans and just for fans in general. I I hope he's good because um, I mean if he if he can 
turn that athleticism into being an actual good player at the uh, NBA level, then that, that'll be a lot of fun for fans to watch. But as of now, I am skeptical. All right, let's go to our dummy of the week. So our dummy of the week this time around is Mark Cuban. So with the whole Porzingis situation unfolding with the rape allegation and um, in turn him uh, filing an extortion claim, no matter how you look at it, Mark Cuban doesn't come out of this looking good. So it was originally reported that the Mavs were informed of the rape allegation at the time of the trade, uh, which was earlier this season. And then recently, a Dallas outlet reported that during the trade discussions, the Knicks only mentioned the extortion case and never mentioned the word rape. So if depending on which side is true, so say they had the the Mavs did know about the rape allegation. Well, then that that I mean, Cuban basically ignored whatever the optics of the situation were. And made the trade anyway. Or he didn't know about the rape allegation, knew about the extortion, but didn't actually do his due diligence and look into it. And then, I mean, in either case, that's not a good look for Cuban. It's not a good look for the Mavs organization in general, especially given the mistreatment of women that had been going on in the organization. And there was a big expose on it, what was it, like a year or two ago? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in general, this is a pretty bad look for that entire organization and specifically Mark Cuban because he is known as one of the more hands-on owners. So I think it does, the blame does go back to him a pretty decent amount. Right. Yeah. And especially, um, you know, looking at the idea of, I didn't know was a defense to, Oh yeah, we just heard about the extortion and that was it. You've just promised to be more hands-on I didn't know shouldn't be a defense for you anymore. Um, But yeah, like the biggest thing is in terms of what we can actually talk about here, there's nothing really that we can add about what we know about Porzingis. We don't know the facts of that night. We've got little bits and pieces of evidence that we can interpret either way. Um, Like basically people will read them however they want to. But but we can definitely look at Cuban and be like, okay, no, you needed to like this. This is a mistake that your organization cannot afford to make because of its history. And it definitely makes him look significantly worse for it. Yeah. Uh, this was something that after that expose and, you know, that entire outing of the history of uh, treatment or mistreatment of women in their organization, it seems like something that they should be going out of their way to check. And especially if a team comes up to you and says, Hey, there's this extortion case. You might want to look into why there's an extortion case. Yeah. <laughs> Um, an extortion case doesn't just come up out of nowhere. I mean, if it's, if there's an extortion case, you probably have something bad behind it. Look into that. And once you find out that it's a rape allegation, maybe, maybe do your own due diligence there. Um, which it seems like, again, like depending on which side is actually true here and what the Mavericks knew, there's no way for Cuban to come out of this looking good. All right, uh, so let's go to our next section, which is hot take, cold take. So we just have a few here. And the first one here is Coach K is overrated as a coach. I'm going to start this one off and say cold take. Um, It's definitely probably a hot take that I'm saying cold take on this one. 
Um, I think he's a great recruiter. Uh, and I think this season kind of showed that f- as a strictly like X's and O's coach, I don't think he's great. He He's good at stockpiling talent. He's good at developing talent. But in terms of getting out on the court and actually running the right system for those players, I'm not sure he's actually that good at it. I will take all the hate I'll get for that one. But yeah, I'm going to go with cold take on uh, him being overrated. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not going to go quite that far. I like <laughs> on the sheet I actually have lukewarm take written because I do agree that tactically speaking he makes a like he does a lot of things that he shouldn't do. He had two of the best pick and roll ball handlers in college basketball between Cam Reddish and uh, Trey Jones and ran very little high pick and roll at all. Um as a result, like, I mean, and he also had, like, it wasn't because he didn't have the role men for it. Marquise Bolden, and especially Zion Williamson, should be elite role men. They just didn't get the opportunity to do so. I think Zion had something ridiculously low, like 25 total possessions as the role man um, in the pick and roll, which is, I mean, that's what he's going to do at the next level pretty consistently. And that's completely ridiculous. The only reason I don't think that it's an outright cold take is because I think in context of his peers... He's actually not that overrated because you start looking at all the other blue blood coaches. So, uh, you know, look at Roy Williams at UNC, look at uh, Bill Self at Kansas, look at John Calipari at Kentucky. Honestly, he's probably the second best of those guys in terms of X's and O's, um, only behind Self. And Self's not that great either. He's just good. Uh, And then even if you expand it outside of the blue bloods into guys like uh, Mark Few or uh, Tom Izzo, yeah, like. He, he comes out fine in that. Um, and so, like, he's he's overrated, but the majority of college basketball coaches are just so far... Like, the gap between them and the NBA level, because recruiting is so much more valuable of a skill for college coaches, X's and O's kind of get pushed to the wayside. And so, like, the best schematic coaches in college basketball... Um, out of the old heads, you're looking at guys like Rick Bird, who just retired... Um, but also uh, Murray State's coach, whose name has completely escaped me, Wichita State's coach, Greg Marshall, uh, Stanford's coach, Jared, uh, Jared Haas. Um, Haasa. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and th- those guys are all like coaching at smaller schools because they don't have the recruiting pedigree. But also it's like you don't necessarily have the time to – I guess not even necessarily have the time. They just don't adapt their strategies to their teams necessarily. Like Kansas has run that exact same weave for like 15 years. And so you kind of see across the board that those um, that those coaches tend to be overrated in terms of like, yeah, they're Hall of Famers, but they're not that great schematically. But at the same time, relative to their peers, they have the skill set needed to concede on a year concede compete on a year over year basis. Um, which you know, oh, he, he's probably overrated, but it's not like no no more so than most of his peers. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, like, I do agree with that. I think <clears throat> relative to his peers, he's probably not actually that overrated. Uh, I think I'm just going strictly off of what I guess the perception of him is. Um, I think people kind of perceive him as this guy who is elite in every regard. And I definitely don't think that's true. But like you said, I think recruiting is definitely the biggest part of college sports in general. And he's he's really good at that. And that 95% of college sports is basically just recruiting recruiting especially for college basketball the next one here uh rob gronkowski's time in the nfl is not officially over i'll let you go first here 
Okay. I don't know. I, I feel like this one's probably a hot take. I haven't tracked Gronk well enough to know exactly where this is, but I feel like once Gronk gets to the to, to the point where he can just party full time and actually literally literally be paid to party because people will be paying Gronk to come to their parties, um, <laughs> he's not gonna want to leave. Um, and yeah, like football's good and all, but you know he's he's probably gonna go. I, I think when he retired, there was someone asking how long it was going to be until he signed inevitably with the WWE. Um, just because that's this kind of thing. So he'll like he'll he'll play himself into these tons of different uh, di- different options and just not really. I don't know if he won't find the time to come back or or what, but he, he at minimum won't come back as a player. I would definitely love to see him come back as a commentator, but I I'm, I'm not going to bet on that. Yeah, I'm. I actually went with cold take on this because I would not be surprised if sometime during the 2019 season when New England is. Uh, probably struggling but probably not because it's new england and they find a way to not struggle every year but if it comes to a point where new england is struggling to get consistent production from their receivers i wouldn't be surprised to see them call up gronk and give them like i don't know a few mil to come back and play the last six games of the year or something um and will he take that uh if, if he does start getting into the whole paid-to-party stuff or if he does go WWE route, which I definitely could see happen, that was <clears throat> that was actually the very first thing I thought of when he announced his retirement. Um, but I, I don't know if he will be back, will be back but I, I think I'd put money on him being back if I had that option right now. All right, our last hot take, cold take. Zion Williamson is the best NBA prospect since LeBron. I will go with hot take. Um, I <clears throat> Look, I, I think Zion's great. I think he was easily the best part of this college basketball season in general. But it's weird. Every time I watch a Duke game, and this might be because of the fact that maybe Zion didn't shoot enough, um, but I just, I never got the sense while watching Duke play that Duke or that Zion was just on both sides of the floor, just dominating the game. Not in the way that I've gotten from some other prospects in the past. Most recently, I know like, so I went to the final four back in 2011 with that Anthony Davis, Kentucky team. And I just being there at the final four and like watching that Kentucky team play in person, Anthony Davis just, Every time down the court, you could just see him putting his mark on the on the floor, and it was I never entirely got that sense with Zion, and he could just like in terms of pure stats and stuff, he is one of the most efficient players, if not the most efficient ever. But I I don't get the sense that he's just this like can't miss prospect who is a hundred percent going to pan out to be great. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's that's definitely a hot take for me to say that. Um, but I also, <laughs> I, I know a lot of people do have him as like the unquestionable number one and like can't miss type of guy. But uh, I do expect him to be pretty good in the NBA. I don't think he's a can't miss guy though. Right. Yeah. And from from my perspective, the problem here is less that it's a hot take. It's more that just calling it a hot take that Zion Williamson is the best prospect in the NBA or best NBA prospect since LeBron, rather, is actually significantly going to fall short of just how far off that take is from reality. 
Um, just because, yeah, Anthony Davis does exist. So, like, I, I referred to it as a scorching take on the on the read sheet, and that's, <laughs> I mean, that's basically what it is. Because, like, okay, yeah, and Anthony Davis is clearly better. There's that. Uh, you can look at even guys like, say, Ben Simmons. Um, that one's an easy one because Ben Simmons was a better passer and ball handler and defender. Um, even though, yes, LSU was a weird situation for him and they didn't win, but by and large, like, the fact that you have plays you can run for Ben Simmons matters quite a bit in itself. Um, you know, you can go down all the number ones other than Anthony Bennett. Anthony Bennett, you know, we're just not going to uh, talk, talk about that one. Let's not talk about that one, So you can, go, you can go down all the number ones back until, like, Andrea Bargnani, um, and he doesn't really compete with any of them. Um, guys like, uh, you know, Ky- Kyrie is the obviously complicated one because of the uh, because of the toe injury, but then you go and look at Zion's in- injury history, and he had four different injuries that caused him to miss time during the season. Um, Andrew Wiggins is an obvious one because, well, his performance at Kansas wasn't that great, and all that mess, so his production wasn't that good. <laughs> Except he had significantly better physical tools than Zion. He was he, he was his equal, if not better, as a leaper. He was quicker, faster, stronger, longer. Sorry, not stronger. Taller, longer. Um, not stronger. Andrew Wiggins is not stronger than Zion Williams. <laughs> um, and so, like, you know, and, and also more importantly with Andrew Wiggins, he had a jump shot, which, you know, kind of matters in the NBA. Um, you can even go down into some guys who were, like, second and third picks so uh you know De'Aaron Fox was a better prospect uh, he wasn't he wasn't the third pick. he actually ended up fifth in that draft but I had him ranked as the second best player in the draft at the time I believe and was and and did end up panning out Fultz obviously is a poison take at this point that one's not worth talking <laughs> about either but just because if po- if, if, if Fultz had been healthy he'd have been you know better than Zion but then he wasn't healthy um but yeah so you can go on down to Fox but even like Looking at last year, you can go all the way down, and I think you get to guys who are, like, the, the first five guys drafted in the uh, in, in last year's draft, and all of them were better prospects than Zion. Um, so, DeAndre Ayton, Luka Doncic, um, Marvin Bagley, uh, the junior, the third, I can never remember how many he is for, Mar- yeah. so Mar- Mar- Marvin, Marvin Bagley, Jaron Jackson Jr., and uh, Trey Young. Um... And all of them were, at, like, at least in some way comparable, if not better, than Zion, even if the production wasn't quite the same. Um, Bagley's the most obvious comparison. He was he, he played a similar style um, in terms of, like, playing a lot around the rim, uh, mostly rooted in his finishing, playing kind of oddly on defense to where a lot of the times he would end up out of position, but you weren't quite sure if that was because of the scheme or if it was because of his actual ability. And, um, you know, he has similar length concerns. Then you go and look at the finishing numbers and Zion finished 79 point something percent of his shots at the rim, uh, during college, according to hoopmath.com. Marvin Bagley Jr. finished 78.4, if I remember correctly. Might be the third again. I don't know. Um, and so like (laughs) by the end of it, their finishing was the same, except then also, Bagley's physical tools are better because he's, you know, actually 6'10 for playing the four rather than being 6'5. Um, and, and it's just like, yeah, those guys are all going to end up better than, like, better as prospects than Zion, even if it's not, even if they didn't have the same production, just because they don't have those obvious weaknesses. Um, they had their own weaknesses, yeah, but those weaknesses weren't nearly as damning. I Yeah, I do agree that uh, there's a, there's, I think people are more captured by Zion's excitement or just like his 
athletic ability, I guess. Um, and I think that it's the same reason why people are so high on John Morant. And it's just the fun player gets elevated to a level that may not be realistic or may not even be correct. Um, it's It'll be fun to see how it pans out. I mean, I hope he pans out because Zion, I think just from all accounts, he seems like a good dude and like he puts his effort in and he puts his time in and he's like fun to be around and all that. Uh, so I hope I hope he pans out and same yeah like I, I should clarify like there is nothing I would like more than to be wrong because Zion is genuinely one of the most likable prospects in years and you know we compared him to Am- compared him to Andrew Wiggins a few a, a little while back and basically the biggest difference in him and Wiggins is that Wiggins had all of these you know long running oh yeah we don't know that he actually likes basketball or is a good teammate or any of those things. And Zion, we've had none of those doubts ever. Yeah. Uh, Especially like after Zion's injury, when all those people came out and said like, Hey, maybe he should sit for the rest of the year. Cause you know, it's happening in college football where players are starting to sit to preserve their stock. But Zion came out and just directly said like, if you think I'm sitting, you're crazy. And so it's, mm -hmm. we, it's easy to see that Zion loves to play and there's no doubt in anyone's mind that the uh, drive isn't there. All right. So um, I'm going to move on to what's on your mind. So I've got a little rant here and I'm going to preface it by saying that I am admittedly a bit of a LeBron Stan. And um, I mean, he's essentially the reason I started watching basketball in the first place. I didn't grow up watching sports, but LeBron was the local guy who was making headlines everywhere um, so I don't get people blaming LeBron for La- the Lakers missing the playoffs this year. It's been pretty well documented throughout his entire career. And it's pretty obvious for anyone who watches that he thrives when he has shooters around him. And the Lakers decided, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the Lakers decided this offseason to go out and sign Rondo. Lance Stevenson, JaVale McGee, and Michael Beasley. Um, Those guys aren't shooters. They're not even good, really. Um, And it was pretty obvious from the moment that they signed that this fit made no sense for those four guys to be getting significant playing time on a LeBron team just didn't make any sense. And the best shooter that they had on the team was Josh Hart, maybe? Uh, I don't even know. But yeah, I mean, they it, at least until the trade deadline, it was hard. Yeah, yeah. It's just it. They had no consistent production or no one that they could rely on to just spot up and shoot. Um, so I, it was just that that fit didn't make sense. And then LeBron got hurt for twenty games in a pretty crucial time where they went from I think uh, a seventh seed to like five or six games back in the playoff race. Um, and then Lonzo also missed half the season, or he will have by the end of the year miss almost half the season due to injuries. And then even Brandon Ingram for the first probably like two thirds of the season was just not good. Uh, all that together, and it's really hard to find someone to blame other than the Lakers execs, particularly Magic. Um, I'm not saying LeBron is entirely blameless, and he did have moments where. You know, you probably wanted to see more effort out of him, especially on defense. But those plays and those that lack of effort on defense 
occasionally. What I don't think those are the reasons the Lakers sucked. They just did not have a good roster. And I think it was also apparent at the trade deadline when they tried to trade for AD and the Pelicans said no. I think that was more... Well, I do think the Pelicans were being somewhat petty in that whole thing. I think that was also kind of an indictment on what the Pelicans thought of the players that they were getting from the Lakers. I just don't think people outside the Lakers see those as good players or even players that they could hope to become good. Um, it's it's one of those situations where it's just LeBron didn't have his best year. Um, he was hurt for half the year and effort level wise, he probably could have done more, but they sucked even with him giving full effort. Uh, they were just, it was not a good team. You could watch like two Lakers games and you could see how inconsistent the contribution was outside of LeBron. It wasn't ever a recipe for success. And I just think blaming LeBron for it is a lazy take and it's the easy way out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's in, in terms of the three major parties on the Lakers that deserve blame for this season, Magic and Palenka are, are very clearly number one, treating them together. Luke Walton is clearly number two, and LeBron is probably not even on the list. Like, that's the gap between him and them. It, it, it just wasn't even close to how much they actually shared the responsibility for this season in terms of who was actually at fault. And especially, like, with LeBron, he's always going to draw some of the criticism because he's LeBron. Um, but practically speaking, like, there was nothing that he could have done to salvage what the front office ahead of him did. And then when people go back and complain, oh yeah, he's been, you know, backseat GMing his whole career, and you look at what happens when he doesn't, well, it starts to make a little more sense. Yeah, it was just, I know a lot of people like to say like, oh, LeBron's a bad GM and whatnot, and... uh, I, there might be some evidence towards that, but he did win a title in Cleveland by getting by getting Cleveland to tr- make some trades and put together that roster. But he had no say in this one, and it showed. I mean, the, this team was just, from top to bottom, they were... I Without LeBron, I'm not sure how many games this team wins. Uh, they, they're at, what, 35 right now, 36? Yeah, it, it would definitely uh, be in the 20s, but I'm not sure how far down. Prob- yeah, probably even in the 22-23 range. Yeah, I mean they were this is just not a good roster. It's the the second best player on the team is I I guess Ingram. Yeah, it's it, it's Ingram. Early in the year it didn't look good for Ingram, but he kind of started to figure it out as the season went on. Yeah. I'm like I'm admittedly a, also a fan of Lonzo, but I think this was not an exceptional year for him and he's had that lingering ankle issue all year. Uh so he was almost a non-factor this year. So I, it's just, from start to finish, they were a team that was probably without LeBron in, like you said, in the 20s in terms of wins. And LeBron probably added 10 wins to that. And it's just, there's nothing else that he could have done. He, You're not, LeBron's not going to come in and automatically make a team a playoff team. Uh, I know he went to the playoffs, what was it, nine years in a row? in the East or something like that. Oh, um, the finals. Or uh, the finals, eight yeah, eight years in a row. And the West is infinitely more, infinitely deeper. Um, there's just no way. I, I know at the beginning of the year, after all the signings, people said, there were a couple people who on Twitter said that I don't even think this is a 500 team and they got 
roasted for it. <laughs> and here but, we are. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah, they're not going to hit 500. And um, I, I suppose they probably would have hit 500 if LeBron had been healthy. But even then, I'm not sure if it was good enough for a playoff spot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, I just it just seems weird to me that people always fall back on blaming LeBron when there are more obvious people to blame. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it's just like the easy way out for people because LeBron is people have kind of turned on him again. It seems like this year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, let's just go on to our open-ended discussion with the final four coming up this weekend. Let's just talk about what were your favorite, what's your favorite moment so far in the tournament? Least favorite, your most outstanding player. Um, I'll let you start it off with favorite moment. Okay. So I'm going to go a little cheeky on the favorite moment. Um, that first half where Virginia was trailing, I think it was Farley Dickinson, one of the 16 seeds. Nope. Gardner Webb. See? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Farley Dickinson was apparently my shift to Gonzaga. Um, but yeah, like that whole thing where it was just like that solid hour where we were just like, oh crap, is this going to happen, happen again? again. <laughs> it was just absolutely beautiful. And I mean, there have been more exciting moments and more, oh yeah, the, you know, the excitement of John Morant doing whatever he did to Marquette and, um, and by whatever he did, I mean anything he wanted. Um, but like that, that moment was just like, such an interesting narrative to watch that it was just absolutely so much fun. Yeah. That, that entire, like, like you said, like that hour of getting on Twitter and everyone's just going nuts about it. And I mean, they were down double digits at one point in yeah. that game. And oh, yeah. you just, it just seemed like at one point where I was like, man, I, they have to get this back to within like five before halftime for me to, <laughs> for them to feel confident about this. And I think they brought it back to like seven mm-hmm. right before half. And uh, you could kind of feel the momentum shifting at that point. Um, but it was just one of those where it, it was all, all this speculation, like, man, if this happens again, you got to like permanently ban them from the one seed. They, they're no longer <laughs> allowed to have the one seed, no matter what they could go undefeated and they still can't get the one seed. It's just not allowed. Um, I would say my favorite moment, uh, just that Virginia Purdue game. Uh, who's that guy for? Virginia that kept hitting the shots. Um, shit, I'm blanking. Yeah, Kyle Guy. Him and Carson Edwards just going back and forth was, I think, the most entertaining part of this entire tournament. Uh, just, I think there's nothing more fun to watch in basketball than shooters who keep making their shots. Mm-hmm. And that game was the epitome, especially with... I mean, Virginia's not known as an offensive team, and they just came out, and Kyle Guy was just drilling everything. And Carson Edwards, he's been streaky this year, and he went off for 40-some that game. And it was just, it was very much fun to watch, for especially for a tournament that up until that point had really had, didn't have that many moments. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's been a, until this past weekend, I would say this tournament hadn't really... I guess impressed me. Um, right. Yeah. I would actually say that that game kind of represented a turning point at some level in the tournament where you kind of see after that, the games start to get really good. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, cause I mean, after that you get uh, Michigan state upsetting Duke as well. And um, that game was before Auburn, Kentucky too. Right. And that was a great game. Um, yeah. I mean, this, I think this entire weekend pretty much had a, yeah. the entire sweet 16 elite eight weekend was just a mm-hmm. lot of very, very fun games. Um, but yeah, that first weekend, 
was incredibly disappointing, no exciting moments. And then you hit last weekend and you have that Kyle Guy and Carson Edwards shoot off. And I think that was my favorite part so far. Um, all right. Uh, least favorite moment. What you got? Uh, Chuma Okiki tearing his ACL. Very much so. Just yeah. because that was one of those things where I believe Auburn was ahead by enough that it probably wasn't going to matter. I believe that, you know, Okiki is probably going to be a first-round draft pick if he doesn't tear his ACL, and now there's a pretty good chance that he's going to drop at least into the second and have to deal with a non-guaranteed contract, which is never a great place for a guy who's, even in the first round, he's a little bit of a prospect, um, just because there's nothing he clearly does well. Um, And so, like, yeah, he's... Um, like nothing he clearly does at an elite level, at least. And so, yeah, like that, that's one of the most like disappointing things to see in college sports where basically for absolutely nothing, I mean, he was he obviously wasn't getting paid. Um, I mean, it's Auburn, so we're not sure, but you know, wasn't supposed to be getting paid. <laughs> um, he, you know, didn't have to be in the game. And by the end of it, he probably lost a couple of million dollars for nothing. Um, yeah. And it really sucks to see. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think... Any injury at the college level or even at the pro level sucks to see, but especially for a guy who was kind of fighting for draft positioning and Mm -hmm. especially in a time of the game, like you said, where I don't think it really mattered if he was in or not. I think they pretty much had it sealed. That was disappointing. Um, I'm going to go with a different route. I'm just going to say, and this is probably a cop-out for me, I'm going to say when Ohio State lost to Houston. (laughs) Um, It was just... I didn't expect Ohio State to win, but mm-hmm. I think Ohio State played a very good game, um, all things considered. They were up and down all year, and that game, it seemed like at some point that Ohio State might have actually been able to win it, and then Houston kind of started hitting some shots early in the second half, and OSU were just not built to hit shots and come back. So I... It was fun to see them fight back and make it a game, and I think we only lost by three or four. Um, but I don't know; it was still disappointing because you never want to see your team lose, regardless of what your expectations actually are. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with that. They lost by 15. <laughs> Shut up. It was it was <laughs> okay. three in my mind. Oh uh-huh. yeah, that's right. They hit some. Eh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I suppose I should be more torn up about my team losing first round as well because Mississippi State lost to Liberty and we were actually expecting to win that one. But <laughs> yeah. And also because it means that Liberty won a game, but that's another point entirely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was one of those where I I would have been happy with just like that round of 64 win and I didn't expect anything more than that. But once that game actually happens and then Ohio State loses, then it kind of kicks in like, man, this sucks. Like, right, yeah. Now now I don't have like a team to root for in the tournament anymore. So it's just, yeah, you never, it's never fun seeing your team lose, I guess. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, last one. Most outstanding player. Um, I'll start this one off. I think so far my, uh, my pick for this one, I think I'd have to say is Cassius Winston. In two straight Michigan State games, I think it was pretty apparent who the the catalyst was for their wins. And in both games, it was Cassius Winston. I mean, he was the Big Ten Player of the Year. So, obviously, he's good. I mean, everyone knew that. He was first team AP All-American or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But he, yeah, it was just at any time during that, especially in that Duke game, Whenever Michigan State needed a basket or needed to, I guess, 
temper any run that Duke had going. It was Cassius Winston making a play. Either he was hitting a shot, setting up someone else, getting some big play on defense, but he was everywhere. And it was, it's always fun to watch when you can see like one specific player being that, that good or like that um, impactful on a game. Yeah, um, I think I think Winston's definitely a viable pick out of the uh, out of the four Final Four teams. He's been the best of their best players because like Culver, in spite of Texas Tech making it to the Final Four, hasn't been that good. DeAndre Hunter, in spite of making it to the Final Four, hasn't been that good. Um, Jared Harper, I guess I, Auburn doesn't really have a best player per se, but Harper's been actually actively bad. Um, so if you want to select him as their best player, well, um, not him. Um, so yeah, I think I think Winston's probably a fine choice. Uh, I think I'm gonna go with Edwards, honestly, um, just because he made it to the Elite Eight, so he was at least close. But he at the very, I mean, he absolutely lit the world on fire for two games. And admittedly, yeah, there was the game where Klein was their best player, and practically speaking, he didn't always have to be there. But Purdue doesn't go as far as they do without him dropping forty twice in the tournament, and I don't think that's happened since Steph Curry. And so, like, yeah, you'll, you'll absolutely take that as, even if he's eliminated, I'd take him as the most outstanding player so far. Um, I think the actual tournament most outstanding player will probably be determined. Do they do the tournament most outstanding player, or is it just for the uh, for the Final Four as a total? I think it's the tournament most outstanding. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like, the, the tournament most outstanding will, prob- will definitely be a guy from the Final Four, so it'll probably end up being Winston. But at, up to this point, it'll be, uh, like, I, I'd say Edwards. Yeah, I think that's also a pretty safe pick. All right, so we'll go on to our very last section, which is make your pick. Um, I do want to touch on that last episode we had Grant made his picks for his final four picks, and I kind of laughed at him at the time because he had Auburn in the final four, and <laughs> here we are. So uh, congrats to Grant on that pick, and he also had Michigan State right. So I More than I, I got. Yeah, I'm not going to... I'm not going to say anything because I'm 0 for 4 on the Final Four. So today, with the NBA season wrapping up, we'll just do a rapid fire on our picks for the major NBA awards. Uh, so we'll just go Coach of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, Most Improved Player, Rookie of the Year, and then, of course, MVP. So Coach of the Year, who do you got? Uh, I've got Greg Popovich. Honestly, this team, like this Spurs team, has no business being as good as it is, and so that's kind of the where I draw the line for uh, Coach of the Year is that it's where it, it's taking a team above where it should be rather than necessarily. Um, well, we'll talk about your pick in a second, um, but yeah, like ra- rather than taking a team from significantly worse to where it should be. Yeah, um, I think obviously Pop is always in the running for Coach of the Year, and especially this year after the Kawhi trade and all that. Um, I actually went with Mike Budenholter. I don't actually know how to say his last name. Budenholter. Um, Budenholter. Um, I went with him just because I think he elevated Milwaukee from being, you know, kind of like that three, four, five seed in the East to, are they a lock for the one seed yet? Yeah, Um, yeah. They've either clinched it or will clinch it tonight. Uh, yeah, yeah so they'll, I mean, they'll clinch it tonight. Yeah, they're probably most likely going to be the one seed in the East and possibly the best record in the NBA. Um, well, de- definitely, because the, uh, the top that's two clinched records too. in the NBA are in the East. Oh, well, yep, yeah, that's clinched too. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then elevating Giannis into the MVP candidate that he is. Um, I think you could probably argue that he was going to be an MVP candidate regardless, but 
I think just in general, elevating the entire team into where they are right now um, from being kind of a 3-4 seed to now being the one seed and home court advantage for the entire playoffs. But yeah, that's my pick. Yeah, my, my biggest thing with Budenholzer is that it seems like in a lot of ways he's being rewarded for not being Jason Kidd. And not being <laughs> Jason Kidd as a coach is a great thing. But I'm not sure how good that actually makes him. And so, like, it, we'll kind of see as time goes on um, where exactly he ends up landing. And he's not at all a bad choice if he does end up winning it, and he probably will. Um, but at the same time, yeah, that's kind of why I tend to lean towards the Popovich side of the argument. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the next one is Defensive Player of the Year. So I originally wanted to go with Paul George, but I think since his injury, um, he's been a little, he's had. His play has kind of declined a bit since then. Mm-hmm. So I went with Rudy Gobert, and I think just whatever there is to say, I'll let you explain. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I went with Gobert as well. It's um, basically since the All-Star break, I, I think that the since the All-Star break numbers are going to be one of the largest things in determining who wins this, is that basically the Jazz are on a major upward trend, especially because they've had the number one defense since then, and the Thunder are, well, about to lock themselves into the eighth seed. Um, despite having been, like, I believe a top three seed before then. Gobert is the anchor of that defense, is the only significant plus defender there. I mean, there are other good defenders, Ingles, Mitchell, uh, Favors, Crowder. Those are all, you know, good defenders, but none of them are even remotely at the same level as Gobert is. Um, and, I mean, George, meanwhile, is sitting next to... He, he hasn't had Andre Robertson this season, but he has still had Steven Adams, Jeremy Grant, guys who are, like, probably top 50 defenders in their own right um, in order to actually make up for the defense. Um, like, in order to build a elite defense, I guess is the better way to phrase that. And so, yeah, like, Gobert is my pick. He also leads the league by a pretty decent mar- margin in ESPN's defensive real plus minus, which is the strongest of the publicly available defensive statistics. And so, like, by both the eye test and how his team is doing, and I said both, but it's actually three things, and also, like, what the what what the numbers are saying about him like he's he's the defensive player of the year and he may not win it because of fatigue and Paul George being an exciting storyline that picks up steam over the year but yeah it, it should probably be him yeah so that brings us to our next pick which is most improved player so this is another one where you and I have the same pick and mm-hmm. i think it's probably going to be an, an unanimous pick i would assume right um I, I feel like there's probably going to be like this 20% of old head media who just really doesn't understand that Pascal Siakam's actually really good. Um, because, <laughs> you know, you, you've had guys like, uh, I, I think Paul Pierce has argued against it. I think Grant Hill has argued against it. And it's just like, guys do better. This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, and we've seen this on like NBA Twitter and stuff where I think a lot of people kind of downplay his impact because there seems to be this notion that he's just a complimentary player mm-hmm. versus some of the other guys who might be in contention like D'Angelo Russell or De'Aaron Fox, who are kind of the centerpieces of those teams. And just that perception that their roles are different. But I mean, Siakam has been legitimately very, very good this year. And I, he should be a unanimous pick. I I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple random voters pick like D'Lo or... Mm-hmm. Or uh, or Fox. If, if someone picks Le- uh, Karis LeVert on principle, I'm not going to complain about them. Um, <laughs> just because you can make an argument that when you don't consider his uh, his time missed due to injury, he was the most improved. But then he missed the time due to injury. 
Um, and obviously, you know, you can't avoid that, but there was the clear improvement. So, but yeah, like generally speaking, yeah, I, I expect Siakam will run away with it. And going with another one that we also have the same picks, um, <laughs> rookie of the year. So this one is a polarizing one. Um, I know you and I have the same picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know if I had a couple other people on, on this pod, Jeff. we'd probably have, yeah, we'd probably have a different pick here, but yeah, uh, we both have uh, Luka Doncic here. It's just, I think from start to finish of the season, he's been the most consistent of the rookies. Uh, Trey Young is the exciting scorer. I get mm-hmm. it. Um, people love scores. And a lot of players have also vouched for Trey Young as rookie of the year. They also vouched for Donovan Mitchell last year because players love scorers. Mm-hmm. Fans love scorers. But yeah, I'll let you add whatever yeah. you want. I to. mean, it, it, it's, I think it was Ben Simmons who actually said it was that it's the same thing as last year. He's the best player. Um, and you know, it's very much, yeah, Doncic has some questions about his game and Dallas has been absolutely pitiful lately, but he's still a much better player in the short run than Trey Young is. Um, just because, you know, for one thing, he actually plays the defensive end of the ball, but also just in terms of what he adds to a team right now. Yeah. He's not the scorer that, that Young is, but he's still much better overall as a player. Right, and Trey Young's had his moments, um, and especially since the All Star break, I'd, I haven't actually looked at the numbers here, but he's he's been on a tear for the most part of scoring. But like you said, outside of scoring, I think Luca is just a more well rounded player all around. I just Trey Young is an abysmally bad defender, and Luca, while he's not like good on that end, he puts effort in, and he's. He's not a complete just train wreck on that end. And Trey Young is obviously a, a good playmaker as well, but it's just, I don't know. Luca just has a feel to the game that I don't think Trey Young quite matches yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also an underrated element that the number of touches that Trey Young is seeing, not, not, not only right now, but even this year in general, is completely unparalleled for a rookie in NBA history. And yeah, absorbing volume is good, but at the same time, like a lot of his narrative is being driven driven by his volume stats, except those are really heavily inflated by those touches. Yeah, I mean, it's... Well, I think we all knew from the beginning, too, that Trey Young was going to be given the ball basically every single possession down the court. It was just... His usage was going to be very high because they have no one else. So I think that, like you said, I think that does matter in the overall comparison, if you're just looking at raw numbers. And then the last one here, we've got MVP. Uh, I know this one's also a hot discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people agree there are two candidates. And uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo is one and James Harden is the other. Mm-hmm. So who do you have? I have James Harden. I uh, I think the basically the combination of of how unprecedented his scoring is and the degree to which the Rockets' season kind of turned around when he started just completely taking over everything, kind of pushes him out front. Um, but like you said, it's kind of one of those things where I like I, I think anyone who really is genuinely participating in this debate has to acknowledge that it's a coin flip, more or less, and there's no clear right answer between the two. Yeah, I mean, I went with Giannis uh, just because I think on top of being incredible himself i the fact that the bucks have the number one seed and the number um the top record in the nba i think that's gonna push him over the top uh but like you said it's it's a coin flip harden could win it and i would have no issue with it whatsoever i've seen 
NBA Twitter argue both sides of it the last couple weeks. So yeah, it's a coin flip. Whoever wins it, I won't be mad. They're both mm-hmm. very, very deserving candidates. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. And um, thanks for being on, Joe. Great to be here. And we'll see you again in two weeks.